Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you, ladies, and uh, thank you, Pastor Murray. I'm going to begin with a video. So I'm going to ask if you cannot see the screen, just position yourself so that you can see it. And it's called The Monkey Business Illusion. The monkey business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Okay, so hopefully everybody got 16. Did you spot the gorilla? And everybody saw the gorilla. For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? (laughs) Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. So and that's the monkey business illusion. I'm sorry if I spoiled that for some of you, because I did mention this in a sermon previously. When I first saw this video... Uh, it was an, another version without the curtains changing color and the player leaving. It was just the gorilla. And I was there faithfully counting how many times the ball was passed. And then it asked the question, did you see the gorilla? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then they played it, and I didn't believe it. I had to go back to the beginning of the video and play it from the beginning to see, was it really there? And I completely missed it. So then, of course, this time I knew uh, about the gorilla. So when I played this version... I completely missed the player leaving and also the curtain changing color. So it's amazing. This is something that's called selective attention. Selective attention. And it is defined as a process whereby the brain selectively filters out large amounts of sensory information. So the brain selectively filters out large amounts of sensory information in order to focus on just one message. So so we basically look for what we're looking for, what's meaningful to us, and the brain filters out everything else. This allows the person to concentrate on the important information while ignoring the irrelevant stuff. We would go crazy if the brain paid attention to all the stimuli in our environment. So in order to be sane, a big part of the brain's work is to constantly filter out stimuli that are not meaningful so that we can actually digest what is 
meaningful. Let me make this statement. We see with our eyes, but we perceive with our minds. It is the mind that perceives. The, the eyes do the physical job of seeing, taking in what's in our environment. But it is the mind that sees. And the lens that the mind sees through. You know, for those of us who wear glasses, we see through a lens. The lens that the mind sees through is narrative. Narrative is what enables us to perceive or not perceive. So whatever our narrative is, that's what tells us what is meaningful in our environment and what is not meaningful. What should we pay attention to and what should we ignore? Time moves in one direction. We can never go back in time. So time is sequential. Therefore, there is a past, there is a present moment, and there is a future. And because time moves like this, that's why narrative is so important. Narrative is beginning, middle, end. Narrative is past, present, future. So as we move through time, we need narrative to help us understand what is happening all around us. Our narrator is God. And the grand narrative through which we see the world is his word. Let's now go to Genesis chapter 2. Where we can see the power of narration and perception. How narration and perception go hand in hand. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. And they, speaking of Adam and Eve, were both naked. That is a fact. If you were alive at this time and you could see with your eyes, you would see two naked people. And that's what they saw when they looked at each other, the man and his wife. But there's a narrative through which they are seeing their world. So they are looking at themselves with a narrative. And because of that narrative, it says they were not ashamed. They were both naked, but they had a narrative that led them to understand there's no reason to be ashamed. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle. He was clever. He was sly. He was crafty. More subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, so what he's doing now is he's challenging the narrative. And he's going to offer a counter-narrative. There's a different way to look at things. There's a different way to choose what to filter in and what to filter out. So he says to the woman, yes, has God said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Is that what God said? So by virtue of the question, he is calling into focus one tree. He is saying there's one tree in this garden that is more meaningful than any other tree. And it's not the tree of life. He doesn't, he doesn't call into question. He doesn't focus her attention on the tree of life. 
so that she then filters everything else out. He brings into view the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So now it's all about this tree. And the woman, verse 2, said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. And now she doesn't see the tree of life. So she doesn't say, you know, we can eat of any tree here, even the tree of life. No. Now it's all about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if the tree of life started to flash in neon colors, she's filtered it out. Now what's meaningful is this tree that we, we're not allowed to eat of that tree. And so that's the focus of attention now. We see with our eyes, but we perceive with narrative. Our mind needs narrative in order to perceive. So now this is the meaningful tree. But of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That is a narrative. Past, present, future. You weren't eating of this tree. In the present, if you eat of this tree, then in the future you shall die. That's a narrative. And so this is the narrative that we're operating under, that we shouldn't touch that tree. We should filter it out. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. There's a counter narrative. So it's the same tree, same garden. Everything's the same. All that changes is the narrative. And because the narrative changes, the perception changes. And we see that now in verse 5. Or this is continuing the, the narrative. For God knows... That in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. So, so God, in your narrative, you didn't realize that God is actually competing with you. In the narrative that God gave you, he, did, he forgot to mention that he's evil. So let me give you this narrative that kind of puts God, that helps you perceive God the way you should perceive him. As a competitive, detrimental force. Not as a benevolent father. For God knows something, that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So now, he's playing with Eve's perception. Same tree, but it looks different. And when the woman saw the tree, or saw that the tree, was good for food. So, so now everything else is filtered out. And the only thing that matters is this tree. This, this tree is meaningful. The fruit on this tree is meaningful. What could happen to me if I eat this tree or of this tree is meaningful. So now this is where my focus is. So let me take a closer look now at this fruit with the narrative that God is competing with me, that God is trying to withhold something from me. So now when I look at this fruit, it looks different. It looks like it's good for food. And in fact, it's very pleasant to my eyes. And I see that. It's desire to make one wise. With this counter-narrative, I see the fruit differently, and I act differently. So we see with our eyes, but we perceive with narrative. Narrative drives perception, and perception drives action. Therefore, narrative drives action. How you behave, how I behave, is a function of narrative. 
because narrative alters perception and all behavior is based on perception. So now we see a different narrative and we see new behavior. She took, this is an action, this is behavior, but it's resting on a narrative, a perception. She took of the fruit thereof and she ate with an expectation. I have a new narrative. Now I'm going to become wise. And then she, not only did she take it, she gives it to her husband. Not to poison him, not to kill him, but so that we can compete with God. We can now be on the same level as God. I'm going to be wise, you're going to be wise. So the serpent told me. This is a new narrative. He gave it to her husband with her, and she ate. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Nothing really different here. They knew they were naked before. What's different is a new narrative. Therefore, a different perception. Therefore, a different behavior. So when they knew they were naked before, under the old narrative or the first narrative, they weren't ashamed. So they behaved in a way that said, there's no issue. With this new counter-narrative, they still see that they're naked, but their perception of their nakedness is different. It has a different narrative. And so their sexuality now is something to be ashamed of. And so they sewed new action based on a new narrative. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is the Lord God. This is their creator. This is their father. This is their friend. This is their caretaker. With the right narrative. With a new narrative, a counter-narrative, this is an opponent. And so now with this counter-narrative, they hear God walking in, in the cool of the day. And so they take action. They behave based on their perception. And Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife hid themselves. That's an action that's based on a perception. God is against us. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. My perception of you and my interpretation of who you are caused me to be fearful. And so I hid myself because I was naked and I hid myself. So when Satan came with this counter-narrative, with a question, sorry, so first he has tries to unlodge her narrative with a question to cause doubt. I mean, she should have had a question of her own, beginning with, who are you? And, and where did you come from? And do you mind if I speak to God about you and kind of get what he says about you? I, I want to weigh this. She just swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. And this is something. We talked about selective attention. Selective attention lends itself to something, a legal term, called willful blindness. Some of you have heard of this. Willful blindness. It's a legal term. And it gets a lot of people into trouble when they try to plead ignorance and the court says, no, you are guilty of willful blindness. Willful blindness, sometimes called ignorance of the law or willful ignorance or contrived ignorance, is a term used in law to describe a situation 
in which a person seeks to avoid civil or criminal liability for a wrongful act by intentionally keeping himself or herself unaware of the facts that would render him or her liable. So I don't want to know. I'm not listening. Don't give me the data. Because if you give me the data, then I'm responsible. And I'm liable for my actions. So I'd rather be ignorant. I'd rather hide myself from the information so that I can plead ignorance when I make a decision that I know is wrong. And that's what we see Eve doing here. She doesn't query. Why? Because the fruit's in her benefit. It's going to make her wise. So she doesn't want to know who's this guy or what is this thing and where does he get his information from. Sorry, this definition comes from Wikipedia. It goes on to say, although the term was originally and still is used in legal contexts, the phrase willful ignorance has come to mean any situation in which people intentionally send their attention away from an ethical problem that is believed to be important by those using the phrase. Either because, and notice this, this is why, why do we engage in willful blindness? Either because the problem is too disturbing for people to want it dominating their thoughts. So, so I don't want to know because this problem is too disturbing for it to dominate my thoughts. Or from the knowledge that solving the problem would require extensive effort. So if, if I have to solve this problem and it's going to require a tremendous amount of effort from me, I'd rather not know. Or if it's such a disturbing problem that it's going to dominate my thinking, I'd rather not know. I'd rather engage in willful blindness. I think one of the most disturbing problems for us is our mortality. We find it uncomfortable to think about our mortality. This is a disturbing problem. Equally disturbing is to consider the death of a loved one. We just have news now of a two-year-old child suddenly dying. Uh, Previously, we heard of a seven-month-old child suddenly dying. I mean, this is devastating. And you could imagine, I mean, it happens suddenly, that's devastating. Imagine if you're given notice that your child is now six months old. In one month, it will be dead. This is news we don't want to hear. And I think one of the worst things we can do, brethren, is when someone has lost a loved one, to say to them, they'll be in the kingdom, everything's going to be just fine. And to hijack the grieving process. It it is natural to grieve. It's good to grieve. It's a part of being human to grieve loss. And I certainly hope, brethren, that if if I die before you, I should say when I die, if I die before you, I hope you'll grieve. I, I don't want my family coming to the funeral and not seeing a tear, like I didn't matter. And I think in, in some church of God circles, we're discouraged from grieving. Look at Acts 8. Verse 
Acts 8. And verse 1, Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death, and at that time there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. So we know that Satan hates the church, and at this time the church in Jerusalem was being persecuted. And, and as a result, they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial. So they just stoned him to death, Deacon Stephen. And he is a true follower of Christ. We know he's going to be resurrected. Was the reaction, oh, don't worry, he'll be in the resurrection? Look at verse 2. A devout and devout men, devout men, these are true followers of Christ. They're devout, burying another devout follower to his burial. And they made great lamentation over him. You tell me the church is not allowed to grieve? They, uh, devout men lost a devout man, and they made great lamentation over him. So if you want to make great lamentation over me, brethren, feel free. It's good to grieve. What I want to talk to you about today, brethren, in the sermon, is I want to encourage all of us to embrace our mortality and to use that embrace of our mortality as a stepping stone to our greatness. I want us to go from grief to greatness. That unless we do this, we cannot be great for God. As long as the fear of death governs us, we will play small. So small, in fact, we may betray not only each other, but Christ himself. Once we embrace our death and come to terms with it and grieve over it and get over it, then Satan has no power over us. And God can use us to do exploits. But first, brethren, so I want to talk about, acknowledge the fact that we must grieve. I want to talk about grief as a process. And then I want to talk about the greatness that comes after grieving. Revelation 1. Revelation 1. And verse 1. The revelation. Pastor Murray a couple of weeks ago showed how the book of Daniel, the revelation in Daniel was sealed. And here John is opening it up. We can understand Daniel because of the opening up in the book of Revelation. The revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ which God gave to him. Why did God give this revelation to Christ? To show us. Us. To show unto his servants what? Things which must shortly come to pass. That's the whole purpose of the book. So by studying this book, we can fulfill God's will to know what's going to happen very soon. Soon and very soon, these things are going to happen. And God doesn't want us ignorant. He wants us to know beforehand, this is what's going to happen. So what is going to happen? Let's go to Revelation 6. What is going to happen? Revelation 6 begins with the four horsemen. 
So as the four seals are opened, we see these horsemen riding. First the white horse, then the red horse, then the black horse, then the green horse. We see these horses riding, all satanic, all working together and riding. Although they come out sequentially, they ride together, each one setting up conditions for the next. So first deception. As a result of that deception, war. As a result of that war, famine. And as a result of that, we then see uh, death everywhere. Revelation 6, and now we come to the fifth seal, 9, verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, so all four horsemen are now riding together, and that brings us to the fifth seal. When he had opened this fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Okay. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? So those that dwell on the earth are still active. How come you're not avenging our blood and putting a stop to this? And this is what God wants us to know beforehand. And he says in verse 11, And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants, Christians, faithful in Christ. I think that's us. Until their fellow servants also and their brethren should be killed the same way they were, that that should be fulfilled. I would say this is loss. This is grief. That I'm reading this book and I'm, I'm seeing us in here and I'm saying, wow, we're going to be put to death. The same way these people were. The same way these brethren were. And even if we should escape... Our loved ones will be put to death. And even if we escape with our loved ones, fellow servants of Christ whom we love, a part of the body, when one part suffers, all suffer, will be put to death. Do we just say, oh, they'll be in the kingdom? Or do we sigh and cry? Do we grieve? This is difficult, and yet God wants us to know. Look at Revelation 12, and he wants us to know ahead of time. Revelation 12 and verse 17, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, he hates the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. That's his whole focus, to kill and to destroy her seed. Who are they? which keep the commandments of God, I think that's us, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, I think that's us. So Satan is against us. And he's going to manifest this hatred one way or another with the objective of destroying those who have the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Chapter 13, verse 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up, out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the, names of, the name of blasphemy. 
And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And remember, the dragon hates the seed. And so he's giving this beast great authority. Why? To destroy the seed. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. So we thought it was over, but it wasn't because his deadly wound was healed. He's back. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So there is some beast power that has the confidence that comes from pre-modernism. This sort of magic, mystery, Babylonian religion. That's where their confidence comes from. And they're brutal. And they're up against our civilization, which is postmodernism, which is fickle, doesn't stand for anything. Everything is good. Anything can be evil. We don't, we don't believe in anything. And we're unable with no doctrine, with no ideology, to make war against this beast. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He's got doctrine. And everybody embraces this doctrine. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him, what, what was given unto him? To make war with the saints. That's his focus. That's who the dragon hates. And this beast civilization is going to be set up in such a way so that it can destroy the saints, because it's working for the dragon. To make war with the saints, will he be successful, or do the saints fight back and conquer him? To make war with the saints and to overcome them. That's what the scripture says. The saints will be overcome by this power. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So this doctrine is going all over the world, and everybody's embracing it. Every language, every nation every kindred, but it's all designed to destroy the saints. And brethren, well, let's go to Daniel 8. Daniel 8. This is the opening up. This is what God wants us to know. Daniel 8 and verse 23, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. The text says he will be successful destroying the holy people. I would say, there is nothing more disturbing than this. That Satan would have a beast power that is unstoppable, whose sole focus is to destroy God's people. I'd rather not think about it. What's on the television tonight? Let's go watch a movie. Let's go find some music that we can play and forget all about this. It runs counter to how I want to feel. I want to feel good. 
And when I read this, brethren, I grieve. And what we need to understand is that grief is a process. It's a process. And we can engage in willful blindness. Willful blindness means, I don't want to know. I don't like this. I'm sure there are more pleasant scriptures that we could be spending time on. Let's go to those ones. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoso believes in him should not perish. Let's, let's focus on that. And let's ignore these. But the reality is, God gave it to Christ to give to us so that we could know. So we can't plead willful blindness. We can't say we didn't know. What, what God is going to say is you should have known. You could have known and you should have known. Grief is a process. On the National Health Service in the UK, it has advice for people who've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. So so if I realize I've got some kind of illness and for which there is no cure, in fact, I had a friend who, very healthy individual, the, the, the epitome of health, a cyclist, an athlete, he was in his 30s, epitome of health. And one Passover, we were at Passover, and he was just in agony with back pain. And he sat through that. Went afterwards to get diagnosed, he had testicular cancer. And the doctor said, you've got six months. And he looked like the picture of health. And the doctor said, whatever it is you want to do, do it. Do, do everything on your bucket list. You've got six months. And if you were to look at this individual, you'd say, no way. He died in five months. To me, it was astonishing that somebody could look into the blood or the bone marrow and say, you've got six months when you look like the picture of health. And if you're diagnosed, if I'm diagnosed with a terminal illness and someone says you've got six months, that is grief, grievous, and it's a process. The NHS, the National Health Service, says this. There is no right or wrong way to feel when you hear bad news about your condition. You might feel numb at first and unable to take in the news, or strangely calm and matter-of-fact. As time passes, you may experience a range of emotions. It's normal to feel some or all of the following. Shock, fear, anger, resentment, denial, helplessness, sadness, frustration, relief, and acceptance. If you could show the slide, Daniel that shows the grieving process. And, I mean, this is not scripture, but psychologists who study people who have to cope with the the loss of a loved one or cope with the news of terminal illness see people go through these five stages. The first stage is, and and those uh, stages that are up at the top are when you feel powerful. And at the bottom is when you feel powerless. So you're, you're kind of oscillating between being, feeling empowered and feeling completely powerless. So the first response, typically, in order to retain, because this is where you've lost control. I'll be dead in six months. Or I've lost a loved one. I, I, don't have, I can't bring this person back. I've lost control. So the brain's first response is denial. To say it's, it's not true. I, I have more than six months. I can overcome this. If I, if I just start juicing vegetables and working out, I, I can get back my health. Doctors said there's nothing we can do for you. 
So the first response is denial, which can be, or a form of denial can be willful blindness. So the book of Revelation is basically saying, in a, in a way, you have six months to live. It's telling us of our termination. We, our lives will be terminated. If not us, our loved ones. So it is, we have to deal with the loss associated with the book. Our initial response can be willful blindness. We don't want to know. Even though the evidence is all around us, we see a state growing in power that has a doctrine that is designed specifically to behead Christians. We see it. It's all around us. And it's growing in power. And we don't say, you know what? Okay, this thing is a part of our future. I'm going to go read the Quran to see what is empowering this beast. I'm going to read the Hadith. I'm going to study the biography of Muhammad so I can understand what is this ideology all about. I'm going to study the revelation. I'm going to study the prophecy and I'm going to inform myself what this is. That's one response. But that response requires grieving. Another response is, nah, it's not going to happen. I think it's the Roman Empire. I'm going to keep looking west and ignore the east. Because there's nothing happening in Rome right now. And that makes me feel better. That makes me feel like I've got all the time in the world. That's called willful blindness. The evidence is right in front of our face. But we don't want to hear it. Once we acknowledge our demise or the demise of a loved one, and we realize we're powerless, the next response is often anger. We become very angry at the situation. We can become angry at God. We become angry, we can lash out at each other. I'll tell you, you know, when I was going through this a year ago, when I started to understand the reality of what we're facing, I felt anger to Muhammad. I, I could not believe that somebody could be this wicked, this immoral. And then I started to feel anger to, to Muslims for following this man. So, so we have these emotions. The next one they say is bargaining, where you're trying to retain some power. You're trying to get some power back in the situation, and you try to negotiate your way through it. Is there a change that can be made here where I don't have to have the full force of this? And in fact, God encourages us to bargain. He says, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all these things. So, so it is possible to escape this. But even if we escape it, brethren, we know that brethren have to face this. So the fact that we can escape it, and this to me is the, the um, I would say, the depravity, the dysfunction of churches that are preaching uh, the, the place of safety. That if you follow me, I'll take you to the place of safety. And who cares about everybody else? That's not Christian. That's not Christian. Christ sacrificed himself for everybody else. And if we're Christians, we're willing to sacrifice ourselves for everybody else. Once there's realization that we cannot change this, then we go into, could be a form of depression or despair, despondency. You just realize, I, I can't change this. 
And I think, brethren, you know, we all will go through this in different phases different, and different times. Finally comes acceptance. So you might be at acceptance. And I'm just beginning to understand the prophecies. And I'm in anger. Or I'm in depression. And I think what's very, very dangerous, one of the great things that therapists do for people who are depressed, is they just let them talk. Charge them a lot of money, but let them talk. You know, Come in and talk for an hour, that'll be $300. Hope you feel better. And they do feel better. Because the brain is under all this pressure and stress. It's going to snap. But if you can talk, that relieves the pressure. And I think one of the worst things for us today, brethren, is political correctness. Where we need to talk about these things. We need to share our grief and our despair and our concern and our worries. And sometimes our anger. But if we're saying to each other, you can't say that. You're not allowed to say that. Don't say that. That's politically incorrect. Then then we're basically saying to each other, shut up. And if your brain snaps in the process, oh well. We need to be able to talk about these things, brethren, and help each other get to this final stage of acceptance. Because when we get to acceptance, this is our power. This is where we become powerful for God, where the fear of death doesn't govern us anymore, and we can do mighty things for God. I I just want to share with you quickly the story of uh, a lady called Faith that I met this week, who is a retired police officer. And she worked in Calgary. And I asked her, why did you, what do you mean retired? Well, you're a young person. Why did you quit? And she said she quit. And, and it was a very specific day that she quit. She had a bad day. She wasn't feeling great. And she decided she was just going to um, pull over traffic violations. So she just planted herself, anybody speeding or going through a stop sign, she just pulled them over. And that's how she was going to spend her day because she just was not in a great state. She pulled over this guy. And she wrote him up for uh, rushing a stop sign. And she said she should have known. That when she pulled him over, in hindsight when she looked at it, he was very fidgety. And that, for her training, that's a signal that something's up. But she said she was willfully blind. She didn't want to take anything in. She just wanted to just get through the day and, and so her training did not kick in. When she went back to her car, he got out of his. And they always tell them to stay in the car. And she saw that, but again, it, her brain wasn't clicking. When he approached her car, he had a sawed-off shotgun. And he was pointing it at her. And she just said she just stayed calm. And they have a little thing that they can do with their knee, which opens up the channel to the station. And then she's talking to him, trying to talk him down, but she's saying code words to basically tell the station, I'm in trouble. And when you get here, here's the description of the person to look for, and he's armed. So she's talking to him in a way to calm him down, but to communicate to the station, I need help. Turns out, her superior didn't like women on the police force. And just had it in for her. And so when the officers in the station were going to go out and help her, he told them not to go. Leave her there. She's crying wolf. 
she managed to talk down this guy and arrest him. Came back to the station to find out what happened. Like she said, at, at five minutes, when there was no help, she realized she's on her own. And this could be the end. So it took her about ten minutes to finally talk him down, and then she got him to the station. And uh, the, office, the superior said to her, you always cry wolf, or women always cry wolf. And she said she quit right then and there. That could have been her life. She could have had her head blown off. And so she just quit. But she said to me, she was willfully blind. The, the data, the evidence was all around her. She chose to ignore it and not to take the necessary precautions. And that's just the coping mechanism of the brain. And the evidence is all around us. We're, we're flying in jihadis into North America. And we can just ignore it. It's nothing, what, what could happen? What could possibly go wrong? Instead of saying the evidence is here. Our civilization is about to be overthrown. Isaiah 30. We see Christians being tortured and beheaded in the Middle East. And now we're taking people with that ideology and bringing them to Canada. And bringing them to, we're basically bringing that ideology to Canada. Isaiah 30, verse 8. Now go, write it before them in a table, and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that are willfully blind. That's how God describes his people. We are willfully blind. Children that will not hear, I guess I should say willfully deaf. Children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. In other words, don't go to the book of Revelation. Don't go to Jeremiah. Don't go to Isaiah. Go to the smooth books. Go to the nice books. Prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Get you out of the way, turn aside out of the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. So God says, I've given this revelation to Jesus Christ so that he can give it to his servants so that we can know what's going to happen. And if we say, I don't want to know, then we're basically responding like verse 11. So denial, this is a way of empowering ourselves. So they feel more powerful if they don't have to face this. If they have to face the prophecies, they feel disempowered. Look at Matthew 26 now to see this on a personal level, these stages of grief. And again, this is, this is not scripture, but it's helpful. It's helpful. It says that grief is a process, and, and we're, we're all, we all may be at different stages of the process, and we need to support each other through it. Matthew 26, and verse 31, then says Jesus unto them, all of you, every one of you, 
shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered, this is denial, and said unto them, or unto him, though all men shall be offended because of you, yet will I never be offended. So Christ is giving him the data and he immediately goes into denial because the alternative is too painful. That I would betray my Lord. I will, all of these other guys and even the whole world would betray you, but not me. Then Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, that this night, before the cock crows, not only will you betray me, you'll betray me three times. You're going to really betray me. Peter said to him, Though I should die with you, yet I will not deny you. Likewise also, said all the disciples. So, it's painful. So the brain kicks into denial and says, no. I'll be there faithful to the end. Verse 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. So Christ grieved. Christ grieved his own death. We we can't say that death is happy and we're going to be in the kingdom, so it doesn't matter. He grieved. Verse 39. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Now he's bargaining. O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he's accepting the Father's will, but he is bargaining. And he comes unto the disciples and finds them asleep and says to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time. And prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, your will be done. So now he's coming into acceptance, but still trying to bargain. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Christ grieved. And Christ wasn't just, okay, time for my crucifixion. He suffered. And he grieved and tried to bargain with God to see, can he get out? Is there a way out of this? And then he accepted it. And when he accepted it, he became powerful. That, that's the power of Christ is in the acceptance of his demise. Verse 51. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. That's Peter. And struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. So you can see now the anger. So Peter is grieving. And now he's expressing his anger about this situation. To the point where he's chopped off the ear of of one of these servants. Then said Jesus, put away your sword in its place. For all they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. Think you that I can't now pray to my father. And he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? And I think, brethren, if we call ourselves Christians, if we are Christians, this is our response. We go through this process like Christ. And if it be possible, we we don't want to face this. 
Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours. And how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? We, we want the scriptures to be fulfilled. And, and if this is what it takes so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, then we are going to go through this walk. That's what it means to be a Christian. Verse 55. In that same hour, so, so sorry, with 53, Christ could have legions of angels come and put an end to all of this. But he's got a bigger vision. And he wants to fulfill the scriptures for that vision. And we must have that bigger vision and want to fulfill the scriptures for, the, for that bigger vision. Verse 69. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied before them all, saying, I know not what you say. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him, so he's in denial, and said unto them that were, that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. So he's angry now and he's swearing in anger. And then the cock crows. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus which said to him, Before the cock crow, you shall deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So he's coming to terms with his grief. And this is a a, a bitter cry. When we come to terms with grief, brethren, this is when we release ourselves. All the fear, all the worry. When Christ says, Do not fear those who can kill the body. But after they've done that, there's nothing more that they can do. So there's this vision that we have that this is not it. And that's the worst you can do? And then I live forever with my Lord? Look at Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things... And by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory. So many of us are being brought unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings for both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call us brethren saying, I will declare your name unto my brethren in the midst of the church and I will sing praises unto you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. Verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that has the power of death, that is the devil. So when we read the book of Revelation, the power that the beast has is this power of death, this intimidation, this threat of death. But because of Christ and what he accomplished with his death, death and the fear of death does not have power over us. He's released us from this fear. That he might destroy him that has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. When people threaten us with death, 
We, are, we, we, we succumb to bondage. But as Christians, we're not afraid. We will worship Christ no matter what. Whatever your political system is, whatever your laws are, I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is God Almighty. And I will worship him and we will worship him forever and ever and ever. We're not afraid. He is God. Look at this video now of this, this lady from Egypt. She um, escaped from Egypt and took her son. And when she was on the plane, as soon as she got on Air Egypt on the way to uh, America, as soon as the plane took off, she took off her hijab. And her seven-year-old son turns to her and says, Mom, you're going to go to hell. She said, no, son, we just left it. (laughs) But listen to what she says here. She now has a ministry trying to reach Muslims and teach them about Christ. I think we might need the microphone as well. Remember that there are half of the Muslim community around the world, not only in America, are women like me. They do what they're told because they look at their kids and say, if I say something, you're going to be taken away from me. I'm going to lose you. I'm not going to have the right to stand and defend you. I might die, and many of them do. And this is where the change happened in my life, and I was presented with the ministry I'm doing today. Today, because... I believe that the truth of the freedom that I thought, see, there's, there's an important point for us to understand. You have to understand freedom to be able to live freedom. The freedom I thought I had by just coming to America is the freedom of the law, of the Constitution of America, which I appreciate and I believe and I follow and I, I, I commend and all. But if it wasn't until I understood the freedom that Christ gave me, that I was able to act on the freedom that we have in America. When I stood and I said, finally, I am not afraid to die. You have no hold on me. I am now viewed by millions of Muslim men and women around the world. 85% of the world watches Al-Hayat channel and call us. Today, the Muslim world that so disrespects women, we are the minority of the minority of the minority in the world. Today, those men call my show and respectfully debate me and ask questions and gain freedom and say, we renounce this treatment of women. We renounce Islam and we accept Jesus Christ. That's an addition for you. What courage, what courage. And it comes from being released from the fear of death. And that's what God wants for us. Look at Daniel 11, Daniel 11. Daniel 11 and verse 32. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But notice this in verse 32. But the people that do know their God shall be strong. The people that know their God shall be strong 
and shall do exploits. We shall do exploits if we know our God. While everyone else is buckling under political correctness and fear of death, the people who know their God will be strong and shall do exploits. In Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14, God counsels the Laodicean church that they are poor and blind and naked, and probably willfully blind. And he counsels them to buy from him gold tried in the fire. Let's go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, the Beatitudes... Beginning in verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. So we're now moving into the evidence that's all around us. Again, we can be willfully blind or we can see very clearly we are moving into an era where it is becoming dangerous to become a, to be a Christian. Where everything else is fine except Christianity. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you. We're going to declare Christ and men will revile us and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, for the sake of being Christian. Rejoice, 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 rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. This, this reward that is coming, brethren, I, words fail me. I don't know how to describe it. All I know is the kingdom of heaven is coming and we shall dwell with Christ and rule with him and live with him forever and ever and ever. And we just have to hold our ground and hold, declare our testimony through this very brief period of trouble. Very brief. Let's put it in context of the narrative. It's intense, but it's brief. And the worst they can do to us is take our lives. Why? Because we say Christ is God. Because we say Christ is King. Are we going to back down from worshiping Christ? No. We will get through this. And we will be exceeding glad. No matter what things look like on the outside, we will be exceeding glad. For great is our reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And he goes on then to say, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. We shall do exploits. It is God's expectation to set us on a hill. He, he's not going to put us under a bushel. He wants us seen. And he wants his power declared. So we shall be that city that is set on a hill. For the whole world to see and say, wow, look at that courage. Look at that conviction. There must be something to the Bible. Let's conclude, brethren, in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, first in chapter 12, verse 10. 
And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. So, so first the power of the dragon, but now is come the power of Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. By Christ's death, we put our death in context. It is the narrative of Christ's death that changes how we perceive our death. And so we overcome this beast, this dragon, by the blood of the Lamb, we wash our sins in his blood, and by the word of their testimony, we will not back down. Even if this is our martyrdom, if our testimony is martyrdom, we will not back down. And notice this, they loved not their lives unto the death. Death does not frighten this group of people. They have a narrative that puts death in context. And they have power. Death doesn't have power over us. We have power over death. And that's the power of the narrative. We understand that the death is a stepping stone to our greatness. Chapter 22. Chapter 22 of Revelation. Verse 10. And he says unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. It's time for these, this prophecy to be opened. It's time for us to understand what is going to happen. For the time is at hand. So, so don't lock up this book. Open it up. Don't discourage each other from talking about what's in the book of Revelation. Encourage each other. Let's talk about this. Understanding that we will be at different stages of grief as we come to terms with what is in this book. But let us talk about this and let us encourage one another. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. So that's all around us. The unjust. Oh well. Let them, let them go. He which is filthy. A very interesting word in the book of Revelation. That there is filth that is spreading in the world. That is empowered by a doctrine that encourages this filth. And if you don't have the common sense to say, there is no way God would want me to do this, then he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly. It doesn't feel like it. You know, if you exercise, if you work out and you're doing something, that's painful. No pain, no gain. 30 seconds can feel like a long time. can feel like eternity. But it's 30 seconds. So our experience of pain makes time feel longer. But from God's perspective, he's saying, in 30 seconds, I'll be there. Just hang on. Get through it. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Your work is your action. Your action is a function of your perception. Your perception is a function of your narrative. We need this narrative. 
This narrative gives us the perception to do the work in the face of whatever evil and filth there is. According as his work shall be, we shall do exploits. Notice this, verse 13. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In other words, I am Jesus Christ. I am the narrative. I am the narrative. The holy days are all about me. This life, the way it's unfolding, it's all about me. And when we come to understand that and come into Christ, and then Christ turns everything over to the Father, this is the grand narrative. And this is what we understand. Blessed are they who have this grand narrative, who have this perception. Blessed are they that do. Narrative. Perception, action. We do his commandments. Not afraid of anybody. We do his commandments. That they, notice this, we go right back to the Garden of Eden. When Eve chose willful blindness. So that she could benefit herself. We choose the narrative. To be faithful to God. That we may have right to the tree of life. This is the tree that's in view. This is what we're noticing. This is our focus. And because we see this, we now understand the curtain is changing. We now understand a player just left. We can see everything because we have the right narrative. That do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life, eternal life, and may enter in through the gates into the city that that God has prepared this for us. So brethren, let's embrace the narrative. Let's not be Pollyanna here. There's a lot of grief in the narrative, but grief is not a state. It's a process. And as we go through the process at the end, when we can come to acceptance That's our power. When we're not afraid, when death has no power over us, we can do exploits. And God is saying he's coming with his reward for our work. Let us not be among those that are willfully blind. Let us be strong, fearless. Let us do exploits. Let us, brethren, go from grief to greatness. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.